The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. Uh, well, tonight as we look at, uh, there's much we could look at in Scripture regarding uh, the, the Good Friday events that happened to the Lord Jesus the night he uh, was betrayed and crucified. Uh, but tonight I just want to take you to one of my favorite Old Testament passages uh, that is a prophecy regarding the death of Jesus the Messiah. Uh, there's two great Old Testament extended prophecies regarding the death of the coming Messiah. Uh, probably the more familiar one is Isaiah 53. Almost that whole chapter is a detailed explanation of the meaning of the Messiah's death. And a beautiful complement to that is Psalm 22, one of my favorites. So if you've got your Bible, open up to Psalm 22, and we're going to look at this psalm, because this also, like Isaiah 53, is an extended prophecy of the coming Messiah, and specifically with respect to his death. Isaiah 53 emphasizes the theology or the meaning of the Messiah's death. Psalm 22, in a unique way, emphasizes the reality and even the details of the Messiah's death. So they go together so well in complementary fashion. So let's go ahead and look at Psalm 22. I will be referring to other verses that I would ask you to, when you can, follow along. Very important in light of how powerful this psalm is. Uh, So particularly, I'm going to be taking you to some of the Gospels in just a moment as we go through this text of the psalm. Uh, If you look at Psalm 22, notice a couple of things goes all the way. It's got 31 verses tonight. We're not going to be looking at all 31 verses. Uh, We're actually going to be looking and surveying the first 20 verses. Um, The beginning of Psalm 21 actually has a little bit of a title in smaller print, at least in my Bible. It says, A Cry of Anguish and a Song of Praise. For the choir director, and it says a psalm of David, and this is a psalm of David, King David, uh, King David, the second king of Israel. Just so you know, and this is amazing, David lived about a thousand years before Christ in Israel, one thousand years before Christ was born. Keep that in mind as we're reading this psalm, because I believe this is a prophecy of the coming Messiah and how he would be executed by way of crucifixion. And the details that David gives a thousand years before this event happened is inexplicable. It is, it is a miracle. It is truly prophecy. Uh, many of the Psalms were written by David. David was a musician and a songwriter. And many of his Psalms actually were written as songs. He uh, was a musician, played instruments. He actually sang spiritual songs. He sang many of the Psalms. They were written uh, as, and meant to be sung. And this would be one of them. So this indeed was from the hand of King David, who wrote this psalm. If you read through it, especially having noted the title where it says a psalm of David, and you're reading through, uh, many times you might read it and think, oh, what was going on in David's life as he wrote this? Because it seems so personal. It seems like he's talking about himself all throughout. He, uh, David apparently was going through uh, some rejection and hard times, mourning and suffering, and especially he was undergoing some persecution, which was true of David during the time of his 40 years reign as a king in the land of Israel. He had many enemies, unjustly so, but uh, they persecuted him, they treated him and maligned him unfairly and unjustly. David was a man who loved God. And so as you read this, you might think, yeah, this is fitting, this complements what was going on in David's life. To a certain extent, that's true, but if you look at the details, you quickly find out that uh, many of these events these events cannot be referring to King David. 
at least what we know from uh, many scriptures in the Old Testament that describe the details of David's life. And we have much information in the Old Testament on the life of David. Like I said, he lived to be 70. He reigned for 40 years, uh, one of the greatest men of the Old Testament. So we have much uh, written scripture about his life and what he did. And even when he was fleeing in the desert from even some of his own family members and former friends who betrayed him. But some of the most detailed specifics that are listed in Psalm 22 cannot be fulfilled in David's life. These things never happened to David. So they have to go beyond and apply to someone else other than David. And that's why I'd say primarily I think Psalm 22 is referring to suffering that the Messiah would undergo a thousand years after David wrote this. Some might contest that. Say we're reading into it, but I'd say absolutely not. David was not just a king and someone who loved God and a believer. Acts chapter 3 verse 20 explicitly says that David was a prophet. Acts 3.20, or Acts 2.30, sorry. Acts 2.30 says David was a prophet. And then it specifically goes on to say that David wrote about the coming Messiah and David wrote about the, the death and the passion of the Messiah and his resurrection. And that is exactly what this is about. This is about the death of the Messiah, and David is writing as a prophet. So that's the first thing. You've got to remember David was a prophet. The second thing is the New Testament makes it categorically clear that this is a messianic psalm and that the life or the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ fulfilled this psalm. Just a couple of references. Uh, if you go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 12, uh, the author of Hebrews explicitly says, that the life of Christ, his death and resurrection, fulfilled Psalm 22. And then John's gospel at the end, in describing uh, the death of how Jesus was crucified and executed, quotes from Psalm 22. And John the Apostle says, uh, this happened so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. And then he quotes Psalm 22. So John the Apostle was an apostle and a prophet, a friend of his dear Lord Jesus. And in retrospect, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John lets us know Psalm 22 is indeed, very specifically, a messianic prophecy written a thousand plus years before Jesus lived that gives incredible detail regarding his death. I believe it is a, it's a famous psalm, especially if you were a Jew or Hebrew. And if you were a student of the word, and many of the Jews were, and especially if you're in the leadership among the Jews, especially in Jesus' day, they prided themselves on knowing God's word and knowing the scriptures. And no doubt maybe many of the Jews had Psalm 22 memorized or etched in their mind because it's part of a trilogy of Psalm 22, 23, and 24, all of which are prophetic of the Messiah. So I'm convinced beyond a shadow of doubt that the greatest of the Jews in the days of Jesus, of those who mastered the Old Testament scriptures, those who were the stewards of teaching Old Testament scripture, who prided themselves on knowing God's word in detail and probably had, like I said, much of it memorized, that would be the chief priests. They were the teachers of the law and the scribes, the same with them, and the Pharisees. They had the Old Testament mastered. They, no doubt, they knew Psalm 22. So follow along. I first want to read. I'm just going to read. Uh, follow along as I read verse 1 to verse 20. And we're going to look past David. And now we're going to look at them. Imagine Jesus 
And the scene is at the foot of the cross. And all the events that happened and transpired at the crucifixion. Jesus was hanging on a cross for probably six plus hours on Friday. And the scene and the people, and it was a public event. It happened during the day. It happened at the highest time of the feast year in Passover. There were thousands and thousands of Jews who had congregated uh, in the city of Jerusalem. The crucifixion happened near the city, it says in the gospel. So there were many people who witnessed the crucifixion. Crowds followed him as he carried his cross down the street. And crowds probably as well stood around and at the foot of his cross watching him while he died. He did not die in isolation or obscurity. He died as a public spectacle. So imagine these people and these crowds at the foot of the cross watching Jesus for six hours on end from beginning to end. And as you, keep that in your mind as you're reading this, knowing that God used David as a prophet to speak a thousand years ahead of time of the details of that death. Starting at verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day. You do not answer and by night, but I have no rest. So imagine the Lord Jesus himself saying these words from the cross. And we know from the Gospels, he did. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 3, yet you are holy. Jesus is talking to and praying to the Father while being executed. Oh, you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel, in you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Verse 6, but I am a worm and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord or to Yahweh. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. That's what the mockers said in verse 8. Verse 9, yet Jesus continues with the Messiah praying to the Father, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravenous and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And you lay me in the dust of death, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Yahweh, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. That is a prophecy of what Jesus was going through while he was being executed on the cross. There's a transition in verse 21 of this psalm, and it goes on to talk about this answered prayer. He prays to God, and God answers the prayer, and God delivers him from these people. He delivers him from the persecutor. He gives him life and gives life to this one who's being persecuted and executed and crucified. That's resurrection. That's new life. 
and how he is able to impart that to others. It's amazing. So the first part describes the crucifixion of the Messiah. The second part is a description of his resurrection. So we'll look at uh, the crucifixion and leave the resurrection for Sunday. So uh, just kind of, I, I came up with three stanzas that I want to deal with to highlight and help us go through this narrative of uh, Jesus and just three main points. And they're thematically laid out for us from the context. Verses 1 through 5 go together, and that's judged by God. The Messiah judged by God. Very important. Judged by God the Father. And then there's 6 through 13. The Messiah rejected by the people. So judged by God and then rejected by the people. And then the conclusion, 14 through 20, condemned by the law. The Messiah condemned by the law. Judged by God, rejected by the people, condemned by the law. That provides the meaning of Christ's death, a full and beautiful portrait for us to meditate upon. So let's just look at the first point. That's the first five verses where the Messiah is judged by God. Who is responsible for the death of Jesus Christ? It's been a question that's been asked for 2,000 years. It's asked every year. It's asked perennially around the time of Easter. And whenever some significant event comes around that brings us back to the death of Christ, uh, when the Passion of the Christ movie came out, that question was being asked worldwide. Who was responsible for the death of Christ? Many would say, well, it was the Jews. Others would say, no, it was the Romans. Others would say, no, it was Pilate. Others would say, no, it was Judas. Others would say, no, it was the fickle mob that said, crucify him, crucify him. Well, actually, those are all true. Who was responsible for the death of Christ? But I think the greatest responsibility, and one that most people overlooked when they were talking about that, was God the Father was responsible for the death of Christ. God the Father was responsible for the death of Jesus in his crucifixion. I went for years in a religion that supposedly believed in the Bible, and I never heard that truth. It was always at the human level. The Pharisees, Judas, I had never heard. You mean to tell me that the one mostly responsible for the death of the Messiah was God the Father and Yahweh who loved him? Yes, that's what the Bible says. And we're never going to fully understand the significance of the gospel if we don't understand that. And so that is explicit right here in Psalm 22. Let's go ahead and look at it. Before we go back to that Go back to Matthew 27 in your New Testament, and we're going to advance 1,030 years past the time of David in Matthew 27. So all four Gospels give a description and account of the crucifixion of Jesus. They overlap and say many of the same things, and each Gospel also gives unique events and details and nuances to give us a full picture of Christ's crucifixion but Matthew 27 describing the crucifixion scene look at verse uh, 33 Matthew 27 it says when they had he was arrested and then he was condemned to death and then they made him carry his cross and he carried his cross to the city or at least the cross beam then he gets to this place outside just outside the city but near to the city called Golgotha which means place of the skull and in verse 35 it says there they crucified him So Jesus was crucified at that spot at Golgotha. And then they put a sign, verse 37, above his head saying, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews, and that was his crime for which he was guilty. 
And then verse 38 says, At that time there were two robbers crucified, one on the right and one on the left. And verse 39, there were crowds of people passing by constantly and continually, and many of these were hurling abuse at him, mocking him while he's dying. Verse 43, they're mocking him even more, telling him, You believe in God, have you're the Messiah, have your God save you. Verse 45, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for three hours. Three hours plus, he's still alive. Verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour for three more hours. So almost at the end of the day, Jesus had been hanging on the cross many hours. And verse 46 of Matthew 27 is the key verse. At about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. He cried out. He didn't just mumble this. He cried out with all the strength that he had left. It's a proclamation that he was making. And here's what he said. Verse 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is in, and that's in Hebrew, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? People familiar with the New Testament and the Gospels have struggled with this statement for 2,000 years. And many theories and interpretations have been set forth that are not accurate. Some of the most popular ones, well, well here Jesus was uh, confused. He was ignorant. He felt abandoned. He didn't know what was going on. He felt betrayed. His plans were undermined. His disciples had left them. Everything has been short-circuited. Now in total frustration, he is at the cross and he just cries out, God, where are you? And it's a question, and he literally does not know the answer. That is the most popular view of what Jesus meant when he said this. But that's not true. Jesus knew he was going to die. Jesus' death and betrayal and all of that was not a surprise to him at all. Just weeks before, probably less than a month before this incident, in Matthew 16, Peter gave the great confession and said, Lord, you are the Christ. And Jesus commended Peter and said, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven revealed that truth to you. And then right after that, immediately after that, it says in Matthew 16, verse 21 and following, it says, from that day forward, from that point on, for the next four weeks until he died and ascended into heaven. For the next three to four weeks while he was on earth with his disciples... He had one theme that he continued to rehearse and teach and preach to them. And he was explicit. He said, we are now going to Jerusalem. And I am going to suffer and be betrayed and be imprisoned and die at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and the Sanhedrin the three main bodies that made up the Jewish Sanhedrin, the Jewish religious leadership. He told them that. We're going, you're going with me, we're going to Jerusalem, and I am going to die at the hands of the Jewish leaders. And then he said this, and then I will rise the third day. Now he said this to his, probably his 12 apostles and maybe some other disciples, but at least the the 12 apostles. And so here is Peter listening to this, and when Jesus said, okay, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die... At the hands of now, as soon as Jesus said, I'm going to die, Peter went like this. Boop. 
Because he didn't hear the last part of Jesus' sentence when he said, I'm going to die and rise again the third day. He didn't hear that, the good news part. And that's when Peter uh, totally panicked, became afraid, and told Jesus and literally grabbed him and said, I am not letting you go. You weren't going to do that. Uh, no way. And then Jesus had to say, get behind me, Satan. You're going to undermine God's plan. You're thinking like a man, not like God. So that's just a month before Jesus knew that he would be betrayed, arrested, and executed and murdered by a conspiracy and a plot through the Jewish leadership. And he explicitly named those three groups. And those three groups end up at the foot of the cross. And we're going to see that in just a second. So uh, time and time again, Jesus warned his disciples, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. He said in John 10, no man takes my life from me. I willingly lay it down and I willingly raise it up again. When he began his ministry in John 2, the first miracle he ever did, at that same time where he turned water into wine, he also cleansed the temple for the first time. And he told them publicly in the temple, the Jewish leaders, destroy this temple, kill me, and in three days I will raise it up again. That was three years before he died. Jesus knew he was going to die. Jesus planned his own death. So Jesus, being the Messiah, being the greatest prophet who ever lived, being God in a body, was a master of the Old Testament, Jesus knew Psalm 22. Jesus knew Psalm 22 was about him. He knew he was the theme of Psalm 22. Jesus himself said publicly to thousands, I did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. And Jesus knew Psalm 22. He knew it was a messianic psalm. He knew the first verse. He had it memorized in Hebrew. And so when Jesus was on the cross, he didn't say helplessly in total ignorance, my God, my God, my God, why, where are you? That's not at all what it was. This statement going back now to Psalm 22, verse 1, when Jesus said, my God, my God, he was making a declaration. He was making an announcement. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was saying, all of you out there, and they were all Jewish except for the Roman guards. You know your scripture. You know the Old Testament. You know Psalm 22. You know how it begins. You know it's messianic. You know that the death of the Messiah must happen according to God's will on behalf of sinners. And when that Messiah comes, he will be executed. And I am here to declare you that I am that Messiah. I am your Messiah. Here he was on the cross declaring that to his own people. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he personalizes it to himself. He is announcing, by the way, the Gospels are explicit. The Jewish leadership was at the foot of his cross, mocking him, taunting him the entire time for six hours. And Jesus, with courageous boldness, declares to those Jewish leaders who execute him unjustly, that he is the Messiah. Search your scriptures and you will see, I am fulfilling scripture right now as the Messiah. In Psalm 22, my God, my God, why hast you forsaken me? Unbelievable. That had to be overwhelming, shocking for the Jews to hear. Probably confirming in their own distorted, perverted hearts once again. They realized what he was saying. Wow, he is taking ownership of Psalm 22, verse 1, unto himself. This man thinks he is the Messiah. He thinks he is God's son. That is blasphemy. He deserves to die all the more. That's how they responded and that's how they talked to him on the cross, from the foot of the cross. The Gospels tell us that. So this is a declaration on Jesus. I am the Messiah. I am fulfilling God's plan. I am here to die for sinners. And at the same time, it is a legitimate prayer that Jesus has. He's praying to his father. Notice he says, my God, my God. He knows this God personally. He knows the judge of the universe personally. He calls him my God. Because Jesus did know the father personally. It was his God. 
As a matter of fact, he's known the Father for all eternity. But there's something unique happening in the relationship of Jesus and the Father happening for the first time in all of eternity. Jesus, the Father, and the Holy Spirit have been one as the eternal trinity with perfect fellowship and union constantly and continually with one another. Jesus even said that in John 16 as he was about to leave and he was warning them, I'm leaving, I'm departing. And they began to panic and he said, but don't fear and you're going to abandon me. You're going to scatter when I die. And then he said this, you will scatter, you will abandon me, but I am never alone. The Father is with me. The Father is with me. This is the only time in history in all of eternity where Jesus would say just the opposite. The Father was about to no longer be with him. The Father was about to no longer be intimate with him. The Father was about to turn his back on his beloved Son on the cross. And that's why there's this crying out. It was prophetic. It was being fulfilled. The Father was turning his back on the Son. That was a miracle. And it was a miracle on behalf of sinners. It was a miracle of sacrifice. God the Father is going to turn his back on Jesus, the sinless Messiah, because Jesus was about to absorb all the sin of the world upon himself. Jesus died for sinners. Jesus died for sin. That's what the gospel says in 1 Corinthians 15. And it's more than Jesus died for sin. Jesus became sin, says 2 Corinthians. That, that, is, amazing. that is unthinkable. Jesus, who was God... God, Habakkuk says, God cannot look on evil. He is so holy. And to think that Jesus Christ, the God-man, the sinless one for all eternity, didn't just die for sin. He became sin on behalf of sinners so that he might offer himself as a sacrifice so that the Father might punish him, so that the Father in full fury might pour out all of his wrath on Jesus as the substitute for sinners. That's what's happening here. That is the miracle. It's the greatest miracle in the history of the universe. That the Holy Father would abandon the Son and the Son would willingly take on the role of substitute and become sin himself, that he might be accursed of God. Die as the just one for the unjust, that sinners might be saved, fulfilling his mission for coming. The Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. He came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And these were all of Jesus' mission statements that are being fulfilled right here on the cross as the Father turns his back on his beloved Son and pours out for six hours the full fury of his unmitigated holy wrath that can't tolerate being in the presence of sin. And he did that for you and me. So that's what's going on here, and that's why Jesus continues to pray far from my deliverance of the words of my groaning. Oh my God, he doesn't, he keeps, he's struggling. Uh, there's real emotion, there is real pain, there is real suffering. As a matter of fact, there is a tremendous grueling, agonist pain that Jesus undergoes physically, and it's given in our four Gospels of being whipped, of being beaten, of being uh, deprived of food and water from midnight until the very next day, and being stripped and beaten and mocked and spit upon and hung upon a cross and nails in his hands, nails in his feet, uh, thorns in his head, excruciating physical pain like no one would ever experience, yet worse and more severe than the physical pain was the personal spiritual pain that Jesus was undergoing for six hours invisibly in the spiritual realm of the holy wrath of God the Father being poured down on Jesus as the substitute for sin. That's what was so painful. And the absence of the Father's loving care and fellowship. The abandonment that he never experienced before in the history of his existence, which is eternal. 
unthinkable. This concept, this verse, this Psalm, Psalm one, or Psalm 22 verse one, put Martin Luther, when he studied this Psalm, he, he went crazy. His brain, he couldn't conceive of the glories of this truth. And he hid away for weeks and months trying to resolve this mystery beyond all mysteries in his own mind. And he came out and he said he was more confused than ever. He couldn't understand it. He couldn't fathom the truth in this passage. We can't. We can only believe it by faith and thank God that he's a merciful Savior towards sinners and thanking Jesus that, he's will, that he willingly died on our behalf as our substitute, absorbing all of God's wrath so that we wouldn't have to. Jesus goes on, verse 3, Yet you are holy. He's struggling with God. He's praying with God. He's, uh, he's emotionally distraught. He's... There's, there's real questions there, and yet at the same time, he continues to cling and trust in his God. You are holy. The suffering that I am enduring, it is, you are worthy to punish me. And the kind of punishment that Jesus underwent by the Father, who was the main person that persecuted, who was the main person that judged Jesus on the cross? It was God the Father. He was punishing Jesus as he would a sinner. And that's why Psalm 53 uses the following words of God's punishment towards Jesus the Messiah. It said, uh, God the Father, Jesus was stricken, smitten by God, afflicted by God, wounded, crushed, chastised, whipped, oppressed, slaughtered, judged, cut off, and put to grief. All by God the Father on behalf of sinners. And yet he prays, yet you are holy. Oh, you are enthroned upon the praises of Israel and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. Verse 5, to you they cried out and were delivered, and you they trusted and were not disappointed. Amazing, the sinner being judged by his God, by the Father on behalf of sinners. Another interesting point, this is the only time in the Gospels that Jesus prayed to God and didn't call him Father. Every other time Jesus prayed, and there are many, where Jesus addresses God and he always calls him Father. My Father, my Father, Father. Once again, highlighting that intimacy that he had in right standing with the father. But here, the relationship changes as the father turns his back on his son, as the son becomes sin on behalf of sinners. Jesus the Messiah judged by God on our behalf. Let's go on to the second point, and that's 6 through 13, uh, rejected by the people. This is the, the appropriate order. Jesus didn't just suffer at the hands of the people. Jesus suffered at the hands of the people because God had ordained that. God had orchestrated the death of Jesus Christ. Yet everybody involved willingly chose to do what they do. Everybody involved was culpable for the decisions that they made. Pilate, Herod, Caiaphas, Annas, the Jews, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the the fickle mob that yelled, crucify him, crucify him. They did that of their own volition. And somehow, amazingly, God was the one that had ordained this from before the foundation of the world as his plan to save sinners. The truths go together. It's a a mystery. So he's judged by the Father for our sin, and yet at the same time he's rejected by the people. Let's go ahead and look at it. And here's where you're going to, I want you to just flip back a couple of times to the Gospels to see how these verses are fulfilled in Jesus' death as the Gospel writers let us know. Rejected by the people, here's the Messiah reflecting upon uh, himself and how he's treated by people. And also as he's looking around at the cross, looking at the audience of how they are treating him while he's dying on the cross. So verse 6, he says, Jesus concludes, I am a worm and not a man. 
I'm a worm and not a man. A worm was that which was despised, despised and lowly, with utter no, no significance whatsoever. And that's how Jesus had been treated by virtue of crucifixion. Did you know that according to Deuteronomy 21, it says that the, the vilest of all vile, the worst of all sinners, deserve the death penalty, not just any death penalty, because the Mosaic law gave decrees of many different ways that people could be executed. Some could be stoned, some could be killed with fire and burned with fire. And then there was a special execution that was be, to be carried out for the worst of all despicable sinners. And that's in De- Deuteronomy 21. It says they were cursed. The most cursed of all people were to be hung on a tree. Jesus was hung on a tree. He was the worst of all sinners. And that's how he was publicly treated by the Jews. That's why the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes were just rejoicing that not only did we get rid of this man, this pseudo-prophet, not only did we kill him, but we publicly humiliated him with the worst kind of conceivable execution imaginable that the Mosaic law would allow. Because it says, Cursed is he who hangs on a tree. Jesus was considered by the Jews and the Jewish leadership the, the most cursed of all sinners. But it was also true of the Romans and how they killed him because Rome had some authority over Palestine at the time. The Jews could not have executed Jesus without Roman authority. They couldn't have killed him without Pilate's authority, the governor. So Pilate, the pagan, the Roman, had the authority, gave the Jews the authority to have him executed, and Pilate decreed that he would be crucified. Crucifixion was a Roman form of execution. Crucifixion was a little different than hanging on a tree. Here's the amazing thing. David predicted that the Messiah would die by virtue of crucifixion. He gives the details in verse 16 we're going to look at. David the Messiah predicted the Messiah would die by crucifixion, being pierced in the hands and in the feet. The amazing thing is is that when David wrote that, crucifixion did not exist. The best history can tell us it was developed under the Medes and the Persians in about four to 500 B.C. and was perfected and used universally by the Roman government in 70 A.D. and even before that. Augustus Caesar boasted of crucifying 30,000 slaves. And from the Roman perspective, the only people that should die by crucifixion were the worst of the worst, slaves and the most despised criminals of all. Not everybody that was executed by the Roman government was crucified, only the worst of the worst. This goes back to Jesus saying, you know what, I am considered a worm. I am a worm of a man. I am the worst of the worst from the Jewish perspective and also from the Roman and Gentile perspective. And that, he fulfills that prophecy. He goes on in verse 6, a reproach of men and despised by the people. Jesus is looking on the cross. That's how he lived his life. He was a, a reproach his whole life, especially three years of ministry, and he was despised by the people. But specifically that day, he was despised by the people. Specifically that week, he was despised by the people, beginning at the before Pilate, where Pilate laid him before the people, and it says the crowd. And by the way, it says many Jews in the crowd at Jesus' trial early in the morning. And Pilate said, what shall I do with your king and they said crucify him crucify him fulfilling this prophecy that he would be despised by the people this is on the heels of just days before the same crowd is shouting out hosanna in the highest to jesus they did an absolutely absolute 180 in less than a week crucify him crucify him so jesus was despised by the people 
during Passover week by his very own people. He was despised by those who arrested him. It says as soon as they arrested him early in the morning of that Friday, they took him into the high priest and it said the whole Sanhedrin, which could have been up to 70 members, they mocked him, they beat him, they spit on him, and they publicly reproached him, fulfilling the scripture. Then they passed him on to Pilate. Pilate took him in, it says, into his, uh, among the battalion and took him to the Roman cohort. A Roman cohort, get this, where Pilate lived. Big, plush, massive mansion, the governor's mansion. It says that he took Jesus into the whole battalion of the Roman guard. In that day, a battalion was made up of 600 Roman soldiers. Think about the last movie you saw in the life of Christ when they took him into the Roman soldiers. And there were maybe uh, five or six Roman soldiers there. Not even close to what happened. Maybe it was just a couple of hundred. But it says when he did, he took him in and he threw him to the lions or to the dogs, those Roman soldiers. They pulverized him. They stripped him naked. They beat him. They, they were the ones that made, gave him the crown and the, the reed and called him king, punched him and made fun of him, mocked him, reproached him. The Roman soldiers did that, so everybody did. And so this prophecy is fulfilled. Verse 7, it says, All who see me sneer at me as they're walking by his cross. They separate with the lip. They wag their head. That's quoted by Matthew. That's what the people were doing, wagging their head in disgust and disdain for this false prophet hanging on a cross. Verse 8, commit yourself. They started mocking him. This was the Jewish leadership. And they told Jesus while he was on the cross, verse 8, commit yourself to Yahweh. Let him deliver you. Let him rescue you if you are the son of God. Verse 9, yet you are, and Jesus continues to pray, yet you are he who brought me forth from the womb. You made me trust when upon my mother's breasts. Upon you I was cast from my birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. Three times he refers to his mother in John 19, specifically and explicitly says that Jesus' mother was the foot of his cross, fulfilling this prophecy in reference to his mother. That's when he said, Son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son, to John. And he goes on in verse 11, Be not far from me, Yahweh, God, for trouble is near. Where there's none to help. And that's true that none did help. He's on the cross. He's got his mother and those who followed him at the foot of the cross. They do nothing to help him. John the Apostle is at the foot of his cross. John the Apostle does absolutely nothing to help him. They just sit and watch him die. Why? Because it had to be that way. He had to die as the Savior. And he said, there's none to help. Then he goes on, verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. These are his enemies. He had friends and family at the foot of the cross. He also had enemies, and they were bulls. And there were bulls in northern Israel, uh, east of the Galilean Sea, that roamed wild. And when they went on their prey, they would encircle their prey and make a smaller and smaller circle until they would kill and devour their weak enemy. And that's Jesus is describing these enemies of mine, the Sadducees, Roman soldiers. They're encircling me like the vicious bulls of Bashan as they come in to kill me. And he refers to his enemies as bulls in verse 12 and lions at verse 13 and then as dogs in verse 16. They're there just simply to devour him to the death. Verse 13, they open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. Jesus was rejected by the people in fulfillment of Scripture. And then finally, let's look at 14 through 20. Jesus was judged by God for sin, rejected by the people in fulfillment of Scripture, and then he was condemned by the law for our good as our substitute 
God said sin requires death. We are all sinners. Somebody needs to die. It's either us or someone else in our place. And Jesus is the God-man died in our place if you believe in him. So in verse 14, he's hanging on the cross and he said, I am poured out like water. John's gospel says that after hanging on the cross for six hours, as he's sweating and dripping every last ounce of water out of his body, and they go up the Roman soldiers and they pierce him in the side and it says blood and water ran out of his body, fulfilling this scripture that he was poured out like water on behalf of sinners. It says all of his bones are out of joint, which is a reference to crucifixion as you're hanging from the cross and your body is pulling you down by gravities that pulls all of your joints out of place and even suffocating many times the one who was crucified and they would die just from suffocation. He hasn't had water in who knows how long and that's why he says he's been hanging up there for six hours. My heart is like wax. It is melted with him and he is just burning hot. His heart feels like it's going to explode. Verse 15, my strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue cleaves to my jaws and that's why he said, I thirst. Fulfilling this scripture. Every detail is fulfilled in the death of Christ. And then verse 15, and you lay me in the dust of death. He died in fulfillment of Scripture. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. He had evildoers on his right and on his left, the robbers, thieves, who mocked him and reviled him until one repented and got saved. Verse 16, for dogs have surrounded me and a band of evildoers have encompassed me. And, And get this, this is just, I think this is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible. A thousand years before Jesus died, David predicted that the Messiah would say, they pierced my hands and my feet. That is crucifixion. A miracle. And that's how he died. Jesus still has the scars, by the way. According to Revelation, even though he's in a glorified body, that's amazing. In Revelation chapter 5, Jesus, or 4, he still has the scars. I saw a lamb as though it was standing, as though it was slain. How can something that's dead be standing if it's resurrected? And that is the glorious resurrected Christ in Revelation 4 and 5. Jesus is resurrected and he has the scars in his body still. And he will have the scars in his body for all eternity. And when we get to heaven, we're going to get to see the glorified Jesus in a physical body. And I believe we'll still get to see the scars. Always forevermore reminding us of how we got into heaven. How we got our sins forgiven. The amazing sacrificial love that the Son has for us. As a continual and perpetual reminder. For us who are so prone to forget. Well, maybe we'll have perfect memories in heaven. But what a blessed reminder. Pierced his hands and feet. Verse 17, I can count all my bones. The soldiers went up there, they're going to break his legs, break his bones. But in the Old Testament, God told Moses, the sacrificial lamb can have no broken bones. John the Baptist said, Jesus is the lamb of God. He couldn't have any broken bones. God preserved his body and they broke none of his bones. He can count all those bones. They're all intact. They look, they stare at me, they divide my garments. Among them, the Roman soldiers did that very thing, divided his garments for lots, and my clothing they cast for lots. But you, O Lord, Jesus continues to trust Yahweh. But you, O Lord, be not far up. Notice he's gone through the whole crucifixion. At the very beginning, there's great doubt. And he says uh, in verse 2, as he's crying out, you don't answer, God, you don't answer. Where are you? You've abandoned me. And at the end of the day, at the end of the crucifixion, just before his burial and just before his death and his glorious resurrection and ascension, there's closure and resolution to this prayer. And this abandonment from the Father is coming to a close in verse 19 and 20. Because he prays to Yahweh, Lord, be not far off. Oh, you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword of the Romans. 
my only life from the power of the dog. And then he says in verse 21, save me from the lion's mouth, from the thorns of the wild oxen. Here it is. You answer me. You answer me. The beginning of the psalm. He's saying, where are you? You don't answer in here. He's saying, you answer me. I hear you. Father, I'm coming to you. I'm coming to you soon. With the glorious resurrection and the amazing ascension, he'd be back with his father. Having suffered the penalty of death on behalf of sinners, our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ. Judged by God on behalf of sinners, condemned or uh, rejected by the people, and then condemned by the law on our behalf. And my last point is it means life for you and me through the sacrifice of Christ. And that's the thought I want you to take to communion that we're going to get to celebrate together. Celebrate is a time of remembering Jesus' death. It's also a time to celebrate the meaning of his death, which means forgiveness of sin on behalf of sinners because of Jesus' great work. And to prepare our hearts for communion, if you have your Bible, look at 2 Corinthians verse five, or chapter 5, which is a great summary statement about the meaning of of Christ's death. Why did he die? Why did the Father punish Jesus? Well, he willingly died as a perfect sacrifice on behalf of sins, that sinners might come to Jesus as the Savior and be saved by virtue of his substitutionary death, where God the Father's wrath was propitiated or appeased in the blessed Savior of Jesus. And so that's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, He, that's God the Father, made Him. God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin. Jesus was sinless. God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin. Absolutely amazing. And the purpose on our behalf. Who's that? Anyone who believes this amazing truth. Tonight, if you're a Christian, that's you. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Jesus died. God the Father punished Jesus for you, for me. Jesus died, became sin on our behalf. How glorious. In order that we, pathetic, lowly sinners, might become the righteousness of God. Perfect before the eyes of God. Isn't that awesome? God the Father, the judge, looks down. He sees us, if we have belief in Christ, as totally perfect, totally sinless. Did you, did you live a perfect week this week? I know I didn't. I walked with feet of clay. I walked as a sinner. And yet from God's point of view, because I believe in His Christ who died for me, this is true of me, that I have become the righteousness of God in Christ because of His death. That, that is reason to celebrate, isn't it? Good Friday doesn't have to be all bad news. If you're a Christian, it is blessed news. It's the greatest news of all. With that, let me go ahead and pray just before we have communion together. Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for every person that you brought out here tonight. We thank you for visitors, family that are in town, that you keep them safe and help all of us travel safely. Thank you for your word, for this amazing Psalm 22. It's unmistakable, the detail regarding the death of Jesus and the purpose of his death. Thank you, God, for being a loving God and providing a means of forgiveness for us sinners. And that it's so simple on the one hand because it is not by our works, it is by your grace 
through faith that we believe that great reality. And those of us that know you tonight, God, thank you for the reminder in communion, the bread and the cup that Jesus said represented his sacrificial life and death on behalf of sinners of anyone who would believe that he absorbed the Father's wrath so that we don't have to. And thank you, God, for considering us righteous before you because of our faith in Christ. We celebrate that tonight. We thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.